You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So as I started to study uh, for this sermon on joy, I noticed that there was a connection um, almost every time joy is mentioned in the scripture that also struggle is mentioned or sacrifice or pain or persecution or suffering. Over and over again, when a biblical author is talking about struggle, they also mention joy. So I thought, bummer. <laughs> I thought I was going to be preaching about joy. It looks like I'm going to be preaching about suffering. But there's a connection, right, to sacrifice and giving away to others where we find joy ourselves. There's this idea that joy is something that we can't seek it out, right? It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's only found when we're trying, not when we're trying to attain it, but when we're giving it away to others. And there's this, it's this idea that it's just below the surface, right? No, no matter the circumstances, joy is something that you have because Christ gives it, right? The Holy Spirit produces it. So beyond, it's beyond our understanding, and we can tap into it even in the deepest, darkest moments of pain and suffering. It's when it seems to be out of reach is precisely when God can bring it to the surface. So throughout Scripture, there's all these Scriptures where joy and suffering are connected. In John 16, 20, Jesus says that you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. It's in Romans 5 where Paul says that we rejoice in our sufferings. It's in 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul is telling the Corinthian church about the Macedonian church who, during a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into a wealth of their generosity. It's in First Thessalonians. Th- uh, first Thessalonians. I, I knew I was going to struggle with that word. <laughs> it's in that. It's in that book where Paul reminds that church um, that in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Psalm thirty-four reminds us that the Lord is near the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. It's in the advent, right? It's in the the promise that is still there after 400 years of darkness and silence that the sun is peeking over the horizon, right? The clouds start to turn pink. I got up really early this morning because I couldn't sleep because I was so excited. I was nervous. I was excited and nervous um, to preach. Couldn't go back to sleep. Um, And it was still dark. And the clouds start changing colors right before the sun peeks over the horizon. That's what I feel like advent is, right? It's in that moment of, of the darkest part of the night that you might believe that the darkness has won, that, that the light isn't going to come, that the joy isn't going to reach the horizon. It's the advent, it's those four weeks, it's hope, it's peace, it's joy, it's love that you have within you that can't be taken away. We forget that we have them sometimes, we neglect them sometimes, but hope, peace, joy, love are there. It might take a little discipline, a little work, maybe a reminder from me, from you, to remind each other that we have that joy within us. So joy is this deep-seated, deep within our soul, put there by the Spirit, satisfaction. It's not um, swayed by circumstance. Joy isn't excitement or happiness. It isn't something that can be brought about or taken away by whatever the circumstances you find yourself in. It's a quality within you. It's put there by the Spirit 
there when you are happy or when you are sad, that's there in good times and in bad. It doesn't deny the circumstance. It doesn't deny the pain or the struggle. It is there despite those things. It's there in the midst of those things, whether it's pain or death or suffering or life and fullness and excitement. It's that fruit produced by the Spirit in the depth of your soul that is a constant, reliable, and it's always accessible. So when you think about your life, we've all gone through some sort of struggle. If I asked you to think about that right now, I don't know if joy is the place that you, you go to. If I, if I made a list of the things that are hard, if I said the word cancer, if I mentioned the loss of a child, if I mentioned the loss of a parent, maybe a disability, maybe a mental illness, maybe abuse, maybe addiction. It's in those things where it's dark and it's hard to remember that there is joy. And so if we looked at suffering on a continuum where on this end it's always suffering, you're always in danger, you're always in persecution, you're always in a struggle. And then there's this end where there's the absence of struggle. There's almost a, a comfort or a numbness. And when we talk about these things, um, the question that always comes up, I'm sure for you, is, is there a Will Ferrell movie that, that explains these things? <laughs> now, now I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you see this movie, um, but this is a time of confession that I'm sure many of you have. Um, so, so from the movie Old School, Will Ferrell is kind of a, this 30-something um, suburban guy who um, finds himself at, at this college party, and these college kids are asking him to stay and party with them. Come on, stay. He's like, no, 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 I got a big day tomorrow. Um, and they're like, what, what do you got tomorrow? It's Saturday. He's like, <laughs> he says, well, um, actually a pretty nice little Saturday. We're going to Home Depot. Yeah, we're going to get some wallpaper, maybe some flooring, stuff like that. Maybe Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. <laughs> so, so and, and if you've seen it, you remember the scene, right? Like there's something about that scene that like, it's funny, um, but also gets at something, right? Like, like it gets to this idea that, that maybe sometime when, when we don't have struggle, when there's, there's not obstacles, there's this absence, is that there's, there's boredom almost. Um, when there's lack of struggling and suffering and someone's free of those things, it seems that there's almost this despair within us, right? It's the lack of struggle and the seeking after joy and things that will never fulfill us. It's as if we're not truly living if we're not struggling, <laughs> So if you look at that scale of suffering, and you have extreme suffering on one end where there's always persecution, always disease, always danger, and then at the other end you have no struggle, no suffering. Maybe we could call that death by wallpaper. Um, not that there's anything wrong with <laughs> wallpaper and flooring. Um, <laughs> it's just that there comes this um, sort of numbness from the com being so comfortable, right? This, this paralyzing numbness that when you're comfortable or free from struggle, it's like your life isn't truly life anymore. And Jesus invites us into something more. He invites us into a struggle. He never promises to remove the struggle. Actually, he says there will be more struggle when you follow him. He invites us into this life that is truly life, where the struggle and the death and the suffering are somehow transformed in this kingdom into resurrection and life, right? He doesn't remove the struggle. He only promises to be with you in it. 
and his presence can produce joy. I want to introduce you to Scott Harrison. Um, I want to share a story with you. Scott um, was a good kid. Uh, he grew up in a home with a mom who, who suffered from carbon monoxide poisoning when he was really young, and she stayed, stayed sick for the rest of his life, and he became a, a caregiver at a very young age. Now, he was raised in the church. He played piano at his church. He wanted to be a doctor to help people like his mom. Until he started searching for joy in other things. He joined a band. He got into drugs. At the age of 18, he discovered this job called a nightclub promoter, the idea being to fill up clubs with beautiful, rich people and then getting paid big bucks to do that. He spent a decade in this business. He tells a story that he was paid $2,000 a month from Bacardi to be seen in public drinking their product. He was paid another 2000 bucks from Budweiser to be seen in public <laughs> drinking their product. In this picture, he says he became aware of photographers, and he developed the skill of turning his wrist to the right angle so that you could see that, in fact, he was wearing a Rolex. According to our entertainment, individualistic party culture, our distraction, our wealth, our selfish culture, he had it all, right? He got paid to party to live this glamorous lifestyle. He was free from struggle and obstacles and suffering. And yet, as he tells the story, he doesn't describe this time as joy. He described this as a dark time, a time of despair. He says, I was an idiot. <laughs> he says, I was bankrupt spiritually, emotionally, morally. I wanted to return to the faith that I had lost. And so he says this. He says, I sold everything I owned. I took a year off to serve others instead of myself, which sounds like Jesus' advice to the rich young ruler. He applied to join all of these humanitarian efforts around the world, and he was denied by all of them because of his lifestyle, because of his past. Until one said that if you pay us $500 a month, you can come be our photographer. And so he said, yeah, sure. And then he taught himself how to take pictures. <laughs> it was with uh, Mercy Ships. Now, Mercy Ships goes around the world to where people need surgeries, and they bring doctors, and they perform these surgeries for a charge. And so Scott was the photographer who would take before and after pictures of people who had deformities or tumors on their face. They would show up, they would send a team ahead of the ship to show up in the area and, and plaster the area with advertisements and, and flyers in the villages to say, if you need a surgery, come and get the surgery for free. We're offering this service to you. And so the word went out, and later on, Scott and the team arrived in Libya and in, in Liberia. Scott knew that they had 1,500 spots for surgeries, and he snapped a picture of 7,000 people who showed up, some who traveled for over a month in hopes of getting the surgery. So he knew that over 5,000 people would be sent away without the surgery. Alfred was the first person that he photographed. After Alfred's surgery, Scott um, walked him back to his village where the people danced and celebrated Alfred's healing. He describes how he witnessed this beautiful thing, but also there was this need that wasn't being met. He discovered that the reason for the diseases and these tumors was a lack of clean water. People would travel for miles, half a day, to get water. 
And that water was killing them. It was causing disease. It was causing these tumors. It was full of bacteria and parasites. So Scott is now the founder and CEO of Charity Water. Their vision is that every human would have access to clean water. This is changing lives. This is changing the world. And so he leveraged his um, relationships with those rich, beautiful people to start this charity. Um, and he had an interesting idea. Sometimes, you, you know, you give a dollar to the, to the charity and only 50 cents goes to actually the water crisis and the rest goes to funding the charity. So he got some people who were interested to fund the operations side of things. So every dollar that you give, 100% of it, go, the public gives, 100% of it goes to water. So he has some pretty powerful images that they designed to um, explain the water crisis. There's, there's this one. One in six people on the planet don't have access to safe, clean drinking water. Then there's this one. 4,500 kids will die today from water-related diseases. Help. And so Scott leveraged his past to those rich, beautiful people and he, that he used to, used to fill clubs, and he now, instead of filling clubs, he's filling the needs of people who don't have clean water. They've done a lot. And the stories that Scott, Scott tells of changed lives shows that clean water not only stops the disease from the dirty water, it acts, as, it acts as a solid foundation to build life upon. It frees the women who are usually the ones that travel the whole day to get water. It frees them to contribute to their family and their community in other ways. It allows for education and businesses and life. My favorite story is Helen. Helen tells how a well in her village changed her life, that when she had to carry five gallons back from the nearest water source, taking her all day to do so, and that water wasn't clean, she would have to make a choice on how to use this water, cleaning, cooking, bathing, laundry. If her kids went to school in, in a dirty uniform, they were sent home. Her husband needed clean clothes to go to work. So she usually put herself last, meaning that her clothes didn't get washed, and she didn't bathe, and she didn't get a drink. Now that water was available and plentiful, she said this. She said, now I am beautiful. Look at her. She's glowing, like her fancy dress, the fresh flowers in her hair. So there's a struggle, and then there's an absence of struggle. It's as if we need to find a struggle to truly live. We need to seek it out and enter into it to find life. I share Scott Harrison's story with you to point out his transformation from despair to joy, not by getting more and having it all, but the opposite. He went from a life that should seem to have no struggle to finding joy in and giving his life to the struggle of others. I see teens do this, right? They, they seek out struggle. Their parents go out of their way to ensure that they have a good life, sometimes to ensure that they don't grow, go through the things their parents went through. And these kids have a pretty good life that they create their own drama. <laughs> they create tension. They create some sort of pain as, as a response to the absence of it. It's as if they know that they need it, and they seek out a struggle unintentionally, maybe in unhealthy ways as it may be. Or they seek joy, and they're unfulfilled by the many outlets available to them, whether it's likes on social media 
or the right brand of clothes and materialism or its popularity or its drugs. And they're left with that boredom and that despair that we saw in Scott or Will Ferrell in that movie. It's not that they need more suffering, it's that they need to know Jesus and the joy that he offers. They need to learn to tap into that, seeking out that struggle rather than unhealthy ones. Because there's the absence of suffering. And then there's the overwhelming extreme suffering and struggle that some of us know on the other end of that spectrum. So I want to tell you a story of a young Polish man. I'm not going to try to say his name because some of those aren't even letters. He was living in Nazi-occupied Germany in 1941. And he comes home to find his father had died while he was away at work. This left him as the last surviving family member. He had lost his mother, his brother, in the same way. While he was away, he returned to find someone had died at home. And holding his father in his arms when he found him that day, there were people there that recorded this experience. They say that he says this. He says, I was not at my mother's death. I was not at my brother's death. I was not at my father's death. I've lost all the people I've loved. He was 20. The year before this, he was struck by a truck, a tram and suffered a, a fractured skull. The same year, he was hit by another vehicle, um, left him with one shoulder higher than the other in a permanent stoop. Four years later, he was hit by a truck. This guy, come on, watch out for cars, dude. <laughs> hit by another truck and spent two weeks in a hospital recovering from a severe concussion. On August 6, 1944, the day known as Black Sunday, Soldiers entered his town and gathered up all the young men, seizing 8,000 while he hid in a basement. This man knew suffering, knew, knew tragedy. Peggy Noonan wrote this about his experience. She says, ripped out of the soil of his background, his life could no longer be what it used to be. He now began a journey to deeper communion with God, but it did not come without tears and it did not come without what seems to have been a certain existential horror. He knew this extreme suffering. Now this man, later on in life, we know him as Pope John Paul II. This is him in a prison visiting the man who shot him in an assassination attempt to offer him love and forgiveness. So there's this extreme suffering that can crush you. It can leave you feeling hopeless. And yet Jesus enters into it. He enters into the suffering, enters into this world, and he feels that suffering. It's in the incarnation that God joins us in the suffering, and he screams alongside of us. It's as if the cross says to you and to me, me too. Because I don't know about you, but it's in those times of suffering that I yelled at God and said, you don't know what this is like. But he showed me the cross. He said, yeah, I do. And I hate it too. The beauty of this God who knows suffering and struggle is that he's also the one who overcame it. He's also the one who tr transform it, transforms it from a crushing weight into a strength and even joy. And it's when we do that, it's when we follow his example to enter into the struggle, enter into suffering, offering joy to others, it's when we do that that we find that joy too. Or as Paul puts it 
From our poverty, we enrich others, having nothing yet possessing everything. 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. Paul knew what this extreme suffering was like as well. He says, but as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the message of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness on the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying and look, we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So Jesus was questioned about fasting in Luke 5, uh, 33. It said that they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and those days they will fast. Jesus came as a suffering servant, but he also insisted that his presence was an occasion for celebration. The first miracle recorded in the book of John takes place at a first century Jewish wedding, right? It's this huge party. The whole town is there celebrating the two becoming one. And it's this reminder that Jesus' presence, right? The, the incarnation is a marriage of heaven coming to earth. It's a marriage. Jesus brought that with him. And in this miracle, this reminder of wine, this symbol that is used throughout Scripture as a symbol of heaven, as a place where God's rule and reign are in place. Right? This miracle is a reminder that the God, the creator of heaven and earth, created this wine in abundance so that the party could go on. So later, when Jesus questioned about fasting, he reminded those present that this was a wedding, right? And as long as the bridegroom was present, the party must go on. It's not that Jesus and his disciples didn't fast. Jesus fasted for 40 days, and he told his disciples in really difficult situations required fasting. So clearly fasting is something that we should still do. It has value. It reminds us that following Jesus means giving up other things. But this rigid rule-keeping type of fasting is what the questions were about. See, the, the Pharisees insisted that everyone should fast twice a week. And so Jesus and his disciples not, go, not doing this part of this institutionalized religion is like Jesus not checking one of the boxes required to be a Messiah. So Jesus didn't do that, so clearly he needed some advice on how to Messiah. Jesus invites you into a struggle but he also invites you into a celebration feast. We're getting to the Hershey kiss. We're getting to it. Right? Like, like there's, there's a practice of fasting, but there's also the spiritual practice of feasting. Now, I'm not sure if that's actually a spiritual practice. Uh, I did it once. Somebody led me through it, and I thought it was cool. So I'm going to lead you through it today. Uh, I don't know how ancient this practice is. but um, So the, the spiritual practice of feasting. Um, Jesus comes as Lord of the feast, right? He's offering this new way to approach God, not through ceremonial and ritual and rules and animal sacrifice, but through feasting and celebrating because his sacrifice takes away that barrier once for all. 
the cross reconciles relationships. It takes things that were once a barrier and removes them, but not only removes the barrier, he changes it into a vehicle as a way to get to God. And so feasting, when I talk about feasting, it's a metaphor. It's not just food. Like, like you can do this with every part of life. The idea of feasting is to experience joy, and you can experience joy through breath, through um, observing a sunrise, through a relationship, whatever it is. So there is within your heart, if Jesus is in there, there is within your heart fullness, full joy, full love, full peace. It's this fruit produced by the Spirit when you follow him. It's there all the time. All right, we have to learn, or sometimes we have to remember, or sometimes we have to develop the skill of accessing it. We also have taste buds. <laughs> I think God gave us taste buds to experience joy. So we're going to practice feasting now as a way of activating the joy that's already within our hearts by feasting on something as small as this Hershey kiss, okay? So don't, don't eat it yet. Just pick it up. Okay. You're going to eat this piece of chocolate as if it is the last piece of chocolate you will ever have in your existence. All right? You're going to focus on getting every last piece of joy you can out of this experience. So before you unwrap it, look at it. Appreciate the shape, right? The simplicity. The light reflecting off of the foil. The paper flag waving at you. All right? So, so feel it. Like, like, like feel it. Experience the joy from it. Now unwrap it, right? Like take joy in not tearing the foil, right? Like the success of the perfect unwrap job when you don't rip the foil. Or if you rip it, take joy in that too. Either way. All right, now now smell it, right? Like, like take joy in the way that the ingredients combine to make this unique smell, the way our noses detect these molecules, these particles in the air. Breathe in deep the joy, you guys. Breathe in deep the joy of chocolate. Yes. Are you ready? Are you ready to taste it now? All right. Let it sit in your mouth. Let it sit there. All right. Like, like take in how it feels on your tongue, sending signals to your brain, letting your brain go, oh, chocolate. All right. Now, now as it melts, you get the joy of the texture and the taste filling your mouth. Take in the joy. Now, now turn to your neighbor and show them what's in your mouth. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? Like, like. Ah, seafood, yeah. You like seafood? Okay. I just like, like turn to your neighbor and say, this is good. Like, I, I love sharing this experience with you. Like, go ahead. Like, but yeah, share with your neighbor. Like, share the joy together. By the way, th this, may be what, this may be what Paul was talking about when he said greet each other with a holy kiss. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the Greek there. Well, I'm not making you kiss one another. So, so it's not about getting it to your stomach, right? Like usually we eat to fill our hunger, right? It's about taking this into your heart. Your hump, your stomach sometimes gets empty. It needs to be filled. Your heart is always full of peace, of love, of joy. And we forget that it's there. So take some time, take some of that joy from your mouth and let it activate the fullness that is already in your heart, right? The gratefulness, like extract that joy and let it activate what's already in your heart. I mean, I think that's why things taste good, right? There's no other reasons for things to taste good except God wanted us to enjoy it. So now, hopefully, you've activated that joy that is always there, and you can do this with your whole life. You can extract those little bits of joy from everything in your life, from sharing with others to a simple breath, to a run, to a sunrise, to art, whatever it is, you can 
extract the joy. You can take it all in, activating the joy that's already there in your heart. Jesus did this this, um, idea of the practice of feasting at the table, at the last, at the first last supper, right? At the Eucharist, when he spoke of death with his disciples. The idea of death um, opens us up to life. When it's dark, our eyes dilate to let in more light. When we think about death, our heart opens up to let in more life. So when Jesus said these things about the bread and the cup to his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. He was opening their hearts up to what is truly life, what their lives should actually be about, a sacrifice of worship, joining God and bringing heaven to earth, joining in the struggle and finding joy. The table is where we're reminded that death leads to life. You guys can come up. So when we come to this table, we remember that, that brokenness, we remember death. Our, our hearts are opened up to life and joy. There's a story about um, Native American rug weaving where um, they intentionally leave a blemish in the rug. They, they leave a rip or a tear. Richard Rohr, Rohr says that um, the reason for that is they believe that that's where the spirit enters, um, is, is through the, the brokenness. Christianity insists the same thing. It's at the cross where God does his best work. It's in the mess. It's in the struggle. It's in the suffering where God can take a Friday and turn it into a Sunday, where he can take the darkness and turn it into light, where he can take our brokenness and create strength. He can take our pain and suffering and bring resurrection and even joy. And so today as we come... We get to experience joy together as we partake in the Eucharist, right? The gratefulness that we find, the, the, the way our hearts are opened up when we remember the death of Jesus and we remember that we, are, we to ourselves are dying to this world in order that we might find the struggle and the life and the joy in Jesus.